second part of our Jonah series. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah, um, you can find it between Obadiah and Micah. Use the uh, contents page if you need to. If you're using a church Bible, uh, turn to page 928. Um, it'll also be worth, as you're doing so, to turn to the Psalms. Stick a marker, a finger in at the Psalms. We're going to be using the Psalms quite a lot this morning. I'd also advise if you've got a pen, uh, get it ready. Um, there's going to be a lot of passages um, this morning and it'll be useful to note them down. Don't have a pen, use a phone, use a, a smart device, anything that you can just to note down these passages. If you don't get them all, don't worry. I can give them to you. Give me a second. I can give them to you at the end of the service. But as a way of recap, as you're turning there, we're just going to flick up a map um, and you'll be able to see that Jonah, a prophet, was from this place, Geth-Hefer, which is just um, where the point A is on the map. Now, Jonah was given a task when he was in his hometown. He was given the task to go to Nineveh and preach to the wickedness of Nineveh, to preach um, God's word and to bring the people of Nineveh back to God through repentance. As we learned last week, uh, Jonah reacted very quickly. He ran away, as you saw in that just wee video clip, and went down to Joppa. At Joppa, he boarded a boat with the view of going to Tarshish to try and get away from God and his task that he had set. And uh, I like this um, little map because it shows where um, most scholars would suggest the storm would have taken the boat to. And at this point, the storm was probably at its roughest and the inevitable happened and Jonah was thrown overboard. And we left last week with this thought process that the crew were saved. They managed to get to dry land and when they got to dry land, they praised God. But Jonah was left in the sea. Most likely, if we had left it at chapter one, at his death in the sea. All this was because Jonah decided he would rebel against God. Whether it was a courage issue, whether he just felt he knew better. Jonah said to God, I'm not interested in this task. I don't want to do this task. In fact, I don't want you. So he ran away, jumped on this boat and got as far away as possible. We learned last week that God is sovereign in all of this and that he not only put the plan in place for Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh, but he equally was able to control the sea and the wind itself to bring Jonah back into line. We also learned that it's a character trait to obey as Christians and in our obedience we have to remember that when we disobey, when we sin, it affects those around us. So this morning we find ourselves in chapter 1 and verse 17. We're going to start then, we're going to work our way all the way through to the end of chapter 2. But just to set the scene in chapter 1 and verse 14, we, are, we get this suggestion that Jonah is no longer living. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. We end chapter one uh, last week with this thought process that Jonah is dead in the sea. But let's just read uh, chapter one, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is not the first time God intervened into Jonah's life. The first time was this great storm that uh, Jonah found himself. But the second time, God sends along this huge fish to save Jonah as he sinks to the depths of the sea. And the thing is, even if Jonah could survive the storm, 
It was unlikely he could survive in the sea. The sea would have been freezing cold. He would most likely have died through hypothermia. So here we have God not just intervening, but God providing the perfect plan to save Jonah. And I love this uh, word. It says, now the Lord provided. The Hebrew word here is wayman, which is literally translated in most uh, translation as he appointed. But here in the NIV we see it is read as he provided. And it's not the only place in Jonah where this phrase he provided appears. In fact, it appears in chapter 4, 6, verse 6, 7, and 8. So 117, the Lord provided a huge fish. 4.6, the Lord provided a leafy plant. 4.7, God provided a worm. 4.8, God provided a scorching east wind and sun. In all of these, God is the supreme ruler. So we learned last week that he can toss the winds so the sea is created into a storm. But this week we learned that not only is God supreme in that way, he can also command nature itself. He commands a huge fish to eat Jonah. Now, I don't know if you've ever been fishing. I went fishing once. I commanded my bait to find a fish. It found my brother's ear. So it's not as easy as it sounds. But God can command nature itself. Now, last week we tried to explain, I tried to explain that some people believe this huge fish is just unbelievable. We can't believe in it. How can a fish eat Jonah and survive for three days and three nights? And I explained that some people view this as fiction. It's just a story. It's a story used to teach us a lesson. As I was reading this week, some other views came up. One of them was that Jonah, instead of sinking managed to swim ashore and stayed in an inn called the Huge Fish and stayed there for three days in self-pity. Now, I don't judge the person that has this view, but I have to say that seems even more unbelievable than a huge fish eating Jonah. And from all the studies in the last couple of weeks, I can honestly say the answer to this dilemma of what is this huge fish is fairly simple. The Lord provided a huge fish. We do not need to question any further. God's word is truth. If it says he provided a huge fish, he provided a huge fish. We don't have to explain with stories of going to the inn and self-pity. We simply look at the passage and believe what it says. So in my mind, as we continue, I consider this as truth. Jonah was in this great fish for three days and three nights. Also from verse 17, we get this really interesting passage that says that he was in three days and three nights. And Landes, a biblical scholar, writes, a journey of three days and three nights represented in ancient Near Eastern mythology the time required to journey to the underworld. I can't help but delve a little bit more into that this week. And the underworld literally means hell or the pit of hell. It would take three days, three nights to journey to the pit of hell. It's pretty easy to draw the comparison that it was going to take Jonah three days to travel through Nineveh. But more so, I find myself drawing the comparison to Jesus in Matthew 12, where he writes, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days 
and three nights in the heart of the earth. Yet again, showing us that it's really important to know both your Old Testament and New Testament. One backs up the other. But let's continue. Let's move into chapter 2 and verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Only here in verse 1 and in chapter 4 and verse 2 is this Hebrew word, hippalel, which most people translate as prayer, which is exactly what we have here in the text. But if you dig a little deeper into the Hebrew meaning, it actually means to judge oneself in prayer, to judge oneself in prayer. So what we have here is Jonah is three days and three nights in this huge fish, and he is judging himself in prayer. He's ran away from God. He's told God, essentially, get lost. I don't want anything to do with you. But now he finds himself saved in the fish, and he can but help judge his decisions and his actions. For the remaining of chapter 2, we read this prayer of Jonah, written as if a poem and known as Jonah's Psalm. And it starts, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help and you listened to my cry. In all the times that Jonah says, In my distress, Jonah's not actually scared of death found out last week it was him that said throw me overboard Jonah's not scared of death Jonah is fearful over the separation from God Jonah a prophet is close to God to die is to see God himself death is not his fear the fear is being separated from God so he cries out in distress are you still there Are you still watching over me? Do you still stay by my side? But here we find the first of 12 references in the Psalms. And we're going to try and go through most of them this morning. Jonah knew the Psalms. He was brought up on the Psalms. They influenced him. And so it's important to realize the history of this prayer with Jonah. So if you can follow along, follow along. If you can't, Please just note these down and check them out later. So compare this verse. Verse 2, in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of dead I called for help and you listened to my, my cry. Now let's compare these to the Psalms. Psalm 18 and verse 6. In my distress I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Psalm 118 and verse 5. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord and he brought me into a spacious place. Psalm 120 and verse 1. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. It is clear that Jonah isn't just copying the Psalms. They're in his heart He knows what they say. He knows that when you're in distress, you call on God. He knows that when you call on God, God will answer. So he is in this belly of this huge fish, and he knows in his heart what he should do, which is to cry out to God. And we'll see throughout this prayer, he continues to do so. Let's go back to Jonah 
and from verse 3. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. The seaweed was wrapped around my head. Now, although the crew was the, the people that literally tossed Jonah overboard, Jonah has no doubt who has authority over the storm and over his near-death experience. Jonah not only knows that God was the one that had authority over the storm, but equally the authority to cast Jonah overboard. It wasn't the crew that had this authority. It was God. And Jonah was swallowed into the sea, caught in its currents, the waves destroying any hope of catching breath. I don't know if some of you watched David Walliams a few years ago swim the Thames. Uh, He got incredibly ill afterwards because he had swallowed some pretty nasty water in the Thames. And one of the things he said when he came out after this charity swim was he couldn't believe the current. Every time he would swim forwards, the current would push him backwards. Just imagine the currents swirling around Jonah. He can't even catch breath. Even the seaweed is wrapping itself around his throat. And it seems inevitable that Jonah is going to die. He says, I've been banished from your sight. You see his fear in just this one phrase. But then let's go back to the Psalms. So here Jonah is sinking, sinking into the water, currents all around him, seaweed choking him to death. And this is what the Psalms say, Psalms 69, 1 and 2. Save me, O God, from the waters that have come up to my neck. I sink in the muddy depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. Psalm 69 and 14 and 15. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Psalm 88, 6 and 7. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me. With all your waves, Psalm 88, 17. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. Psalm 42 and verse 7. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Do you see the correlation here? We've only gone through eight of the references. Yet it is only in two verses in chapter 2 that all of this is steeped in. Jonah was not just going through it physically in sinking in the waters. He was going through it spiritually. He knew what the psalm said. Let's continue from verse 6 in Jonah 2. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. To your holy temple. Now there is some discussion about what the roots of the mountains mean. 
Some would say this is Jonah, the great prophet, that we saw his prophecies in 2 Kings fulfilled, sinking from a top position to just yet another guy. But instead, if you take in the context, Don Carson would suggest that the roots of the mountains are literally where the mountains begin. And that is at the seabed. So what he's actually saying here is, to the roots of the mountain I sank down, he's saying, to the seabed I sink. To the very rock bottom of my life I sink. And Jonah's been sinking for a while now. From chapter 1 and verse 3, 5 and 15, all the way through into chapter 2, Jonah has been sinking. From the minute he ran away from God, he had been sinking. But now get, just get this moment. Jonah is sinking to rock bottom, to where the earth will not let him go again. And then here comes the Lord. Here comes the might and strength of the Creator God. Here comes His love and mercy and grace. Jonah says, You, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. God not only knew where Jonah was, He knew and had perfect timing that when Jonah hit rock bottom, there was the Lord's hands to bring him straight back up. God rescued Jonah from the deep rock bottom. Sin he had found himself in. Jonah's not going to die. Instead, here we see he's going to live. Then we get this odd verse in verse 8 that seems to kind of stand out a little differently. And There has been some discussion of maybe this was added in later, but most theologians would say it is just Jonah specifically dealing with a heart issue. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah's idol wasn't a golden calf like in Exodus. Instead, his idol was his freedom. He wanted to choose for himself what to do. He wanted to choose for himself the task that he would accept or reject from God. And now here in verse 8, Jonah says, when you cling to this worthless idol, for any of us it could be anything, it could be money, it could be freedom. But when you cling to that idol, you turn away from God's love. So Jonah knows he is at rock bottom. He's turned away from God's love. He's ran away from him. Yet somehow, for some reason, God catches him at the pit entrance. And then we get this wonderful, great statement that he said, salvation comes from the Lord. Of course, Jonah's talking about his physical issue right now of literally sinking. But you can't help draw comparison to Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation comes from the Lord. And we finish with this incredible chapter with an unconventional verse. And just before I read it, it was funny because um, I was at Hamilton Grammar recently and one of the boys there I was talking to said, the Bible's just boring. 
And I chose the challenge to point out that the Bible is not boring. I was like, what kind of computer games do you like playing? Oh, war games. Great, we need to take you to the Old Testament. Let me show you some wars in the Old Testament. What else do you like? Oh, I like guts and glory and all these sort of things. And I was like, hmm, where can I go to? And it was this verse I went to. And he was like, I think I like the Bible now. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. It's funny, a teenage boy gets excited about a fish vomiting Jonah. But the important thing here is this language is so different from the poetic language that we've just seen. You have to understand what's going on here. God is not just in command of the fish. He's in command of every part of the fish. He knows exactly how to get Jonah out of the fish. And he tells the fish, vomit him out. It sounds disgusting, but in it is beauty. And the beauty is that God created the fish. He knows exactly how to handle the fish. Just to wrap up this passage, I just have three quick points, three quick lessons we can learn from Jonah chapter 2. Okay, the first one is, our God is a God of second chances. Our God is a God of second chances. Jonah chose his own way, and that meant rejecting the love and grace of God, a way that ultimately led him to a near-death experience. Yet even after rejection, even after telling God that he is not wanted, God hears his cries and pleads from the depths of the sea. God not only hears them, but in love saves Jonah. It is only by the grace of God that Jonah is saved. Jonah was as good as dead the minute he hit the water. And it's exactly the same for us today. God is still a God of second chances. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It doesn't matter how bad you are, what evil actions you have done this week, or even right now, you are running away from the command of God. God still loves each one of you. He sent his son to prove it. He watched his son murdered to prove it. And through his son's death on the cross, you were given a second chance. God doesn't want any of us to perish. Some people ask, how can we worship a God that lets people die? Just read that verse, not wanting anyone to perish. God doesn't want to see any one of us in hell, any one of us in the pit. Instead, he offers a beautiful gift of everlasting life, which we learned last Sunday night is everlasting knowledge of the Godhead. It is offered freely to each one of us. But like Jonah, we must first cry out in the depths of despair and say, God, I surrender. When you are at rock bottom, God is there. God is willing and he is able to bring you back to life. 
And it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say for one time only, if you confess that sin, we'll deal with that one sin. It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. God will continually give the second chance. But let me give a word of warning to those that think that that means you can carry on doing whatever you please. Do not think you can test God's patience. Romans 6, 1 to 2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that the grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? For those who have been given a second chance. God now wants us to live a joy-filled, spirit-led, Christ-focused life. Point two in the second lesson we can learn, and this is incredibly important this morning. Jonah refers to 12 passages in the Psalms. He knew them and he was influenced by them. There is absolutely no point in reading your Bible during the week if you're not taking anything in. The Bible is to be meditated over, studied, understood, interpreted, and remembered. The Bible should be our foundation to all that we think, we believe, and we say. Some of the guys I've been meeting up with recently get a bit annoyed with me because I say the same two phrases. What is your Bible intake? There's no point in just reading it. What are you taking in? What are you learning? What do you see of God? And the second phrase I say is chapter and verse. How many Christians quote vague verses that they don't actually know? How many of us go, well, I'm sure I can do this because there's a verse somewhere. It is incredibly important to know your Bible. The great D.L. Moody wrote, the Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. Let me just read that again. The Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. Yet it does seem, when it comes to God's Word, and putting it first and in a supreme position in our life, specifically in church circles, We don't always seem to find it easy to give it priority. We find something else to distract us, some other conversation, some other committee meeting to focus on. We end up losing sight of what is ultimate truth. I love this quote from Alistair Begg. He wrote, a good church is a Bible-centered church. Nothing is as important as this. Not a large congregation a witty pastor, or a tangible experience of the Holy Spirit. And when in studying this passage, I would go further than Alistair Begg, and I would say, not just the church, but children of God should be Bible-centered. Nothing is more important than this. A child of God's faith should be based, shouldn't be based on how big or exciting church is or a great preacher you have heard online, or some form of tangible experience of the Holy Spirit. A child of God bases their faith on the Word of God. 
The question we get really from Jonah is that when you hit rock bottom, what are you going to reach for? Are you going to reach for alcohol? Are you going to reach for money? Are you going to reach out to your friends? Will you even reach out to the church? Or rather, like Jonah, will you remember the word of God? In the deepest distress of his life where he believes he is going to be separated from God and he is going to die and go into the pit of hell, he remembers the Psalms. The Psalms compel him to pray, compel him to focus on Christ, compel him to realize the Creator God and to fall at the knees of the Creator God and seek forgiveness. How often do you remember God's Word? Third and finally, salvation in Jesus, not in legalism and not in liberalism. Salvation in Jesus, not in legalism and not in liberalism. We get this amazing line here in Jonah 2. Salvation comes from the Lord. It is only through Jesus that we can be saved. So let me finish with just two very, very clear points this morning. First, to those who are not Christians this morning. Being legalistic and saying a prayer each day coming to church when you can or doing that good deed for your neighbor, although all good, will simply not earn you salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. There's no tick box you can do to earn salvation. Equally, just saying, I am a good person. I've never murdered anyone. That should be good. I'm a good person. Doesn't really cut it with God. The only way to be forgiven and to receive this great gift of salvation is to seek Jesus and surrender to him. Literally, salvation is found in Jesus and only in him. To the Christians, live being satisfied by the love and sacrifice of Jesus. He equally is not looking for Christians to tick the box and do things because we must, because that would be legalism. He equally doesn't want us to sit back and say, I'm saved, so I'm all good. I'll go to church, I'll learn a bit of my scriptures, and I'm all good. Live in the reality that you have found salvation in Jesus. Be in church, not because you have to, because you want to. Study your Bible because you know just reading it and flicking through it will never get a strong relationship with Christ. Live in total surrender to the fact that salvation is in Jesus. I wonder how our lives would look if we just said we're secure in Jesus. We don't need to do the tick boxes. We don't need to lie back. Just be secure in Jesus. Jonah 2 teaches us three very simple things. That we have a God of second chances. That knowing your Bible is essential. And ultimately, salvation is found in Jesus and only in Him. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you this morning that we've been able to come and worship together as a family and that we've been able to enjoy singing songs of praise and just singing that song, Blessed Be Your Name, Father. We truly, truly believe that here at Hamilton Baptist. Blessed be your name. Father, we praise you for all that you do here at Hamilton Baptist. But Father, I pray for each one of us, each one of our church family, for those listening online, that we recognize salvation is found in you, that we can be secure in that, and that we will live our lives wholeheartedly in surrender to you. Father, I praise you for Jonah. I praise you that you are a God that can do amazing things, that you can command a fish to swallow a man, that you can command a fish to vomit him back out. What an amazing God you are. Father, be with us now as we move towards the communion table and remembering your amazing act of love and sending your Son. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to sing amazing.